In January 1942, Gordon Parks reports to work in Washington, D.C. He's 29 years old. He has a fellowship to photograph America for the Farm Security Administration. He's the only black photographer in the agency. And when he gets there, his boss takes his cameras and locks them in a closet. His boss, this guy named Roy Stryker, tells him, go shopping, go get some food, go see a movie. Then come back and tell me what happens. So Parks goes out. And when he tries to get breakfast at a drugstore counter, he's told that he can't. When he tries to go see a movie, he's told that he can't. When he tries to buy a camel hair coat from a nice department store, he's told that he can't. Parks goes back to Stryker. Give me my cameras back. Why, Stryker says. And Parks says, I want to show the rest of the world what your great city of Washington, D.C. is really like. But Stryker has another request. Before he shoots anything, spend a few weeks going through the files of the photographers who made the FSA famous, the great Dust Bowl images of Dorothea Lang and Arthur Rostein, who figured out how to show someone's life experience in a single image. One night, Parks is in the office, and Stryker brings him out to the hallway where a black woman is cleaning the floors. And he says to Parks, why don't you go talk to her before you leave tonight? See what she has to say. And Parks thinks, huh, okay. He learns her name, Ella Watson. And he hears what she has to say. And he ends up photographing her and her family many times over the next couple months. She's at work cleaning offices one evening when Parks asks her to stand in front of a huge American flag on the wall with her mop in one hand and her broom in the other, a nod to the pitchfork painting American Gothic. And he asks her to think about all the stories she's told him, about her mother dying young and her father being killed by a lynch mob, about her husband shot to death two days before their daughter is born, about her daughter dying as a teenager two weeks before her own child is born. And he snaps a picture. The next day, Parks takes the picture to Stryker, and Stryker doesn't say anything. He's speechless. Finally, he smiles and says, This woman has done you a great service. I hope you understand this. Then Stryker takes the photo, such a searing indictment of American inequality, and says he'll have to destroy it. This is the Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. 
Today, the story of Gordon Parks, the first black photographer to rise to the top of American media through every obstacle of injustice. And what happens when he uses his camera to fight back? I'm Tim Gearing. About 17 years ago, I was working for a magazine in Minnesota, and I assigned a young writer to interview Gordon Parks. I don't remember what the occasion was, an exhibition or a book. I do remember when he agreed to talk with us, feeling like we had entered the realm of myth. Like the giants of Genesis or Noah living 950 years. There just aren't lives like his anymore. Recently, I decided to talk to Courtney, the writer I assigned to the interview all those years ago, and see if she remembered it the same way. Do you remember interviewing Gordon Parks? Um, I do. I remember it well because I was quite young at the time. I was just kind of getting started with journalism, and I was working at Minnesota Monthly, and speaking with him um, was something that still stands out in my mind as a high point in my career. Courtney is mixed race, black and white. And she says there was something about this interview that made her stand up straighter, pay attention. I knew it was important, but I didn't really fully understand why. I had a conversation with my grandparents. Um, Both of them had come from Ohio to Minnesota to take careers in education. Um, And um, knowing that we were speaking with one of my Black elders, I wanted to be able to have respect. I wanted to be able to understand the full scope of what this meant. And then I also kind of wanted to know a little bit more about his his background and his his determination in kind of witnessing and capturing the full scope of our humanity. Because I think what's important for that conversation, because I still, again, was young and trying to understand exactly what does this all mean, um, was why it was so valuable that he was like bearing witness and capturing this throughout time, um, as we see, like even through modern day, uh, the importance of documentation um, for the black community, but for you know all communities really too, is like capturing what we go through in our storytelling. So I did find that conversation to be something that I, I needed to really pay attention to. And I remember my grandparents saying, you know, they always kind of taught me about respect for my elders. It was crucial that I would use that kind of reverence, that respect for them when I was speaking to Mr. Parks. Parks was 91 at the time. Courtney interviewed him over the phone, and she says there was a quietness about him, a humbleness. He was so soft-spoken that she had to shush the other reporters in the room. Also, at one point, he might have fallen asleep. I remember there was a a lot of quiet for a little bit, so I'm not sure quite what happened on the other end. I know he did have an aide with him nearby um, because I do I do remember somebody hopping on the line and then saying, "Oh, we'll right back to you. We'll get back to you." Um, Parks died about a year and a half later in New York. You're probably one of the last people to interview him, at least in Minnesota. It's my guess. Uh. Wow. 
Yeah. And quite quite an honor for me to to keep that in mind of like to be able to be one of his last listeners in life. Parks is born in Kansas, the youngest of 15 children. It's 1912, just a few years before The Birth of a Nation comes out, the movie that celebrates the Ku Klux Klan and ends up reviving it. Not that anyone needs the KKK to terrorize black people in Kansas in 1912. Growing up, Parks is stoned and beaten and called every epithet you can imagine and some he probably can't. When he's 11, he develops a fear of death, because death is suddenly everywhere. He sees his friend killed in the street. He's paid by a policeman to swim around a river with an ice hook, looking for the body of a black man shot by the same policeman. And then he's thrown in the river himself by three white boys who think he can't swim. Somehow, he stays underwater until they leave and pulls himself up by a tree root. When he's 14, his mother dies, and what's left of his family begins to break up. Parks goes north to live with a sister in St. Paul, but her husband throws him out in the middle of winter. You'll see, Parks shouts at him in the street. I'll make it. You'll see. Parks almost doesn't make it. St. Paul is cold now in winter. It was even colder then. And Parks has no home, hardly any food. He's riding around in a streetcar at night to stay warm. He finds a bit of work as a piano player in a brothel. Then he starts bussing tables at nightclubs. One day he's noodling around on the piano at one of these clubs when the band arrives. The band leader asks what he's playing. And in one of those mythical Gordon Parks moments, his song gets broadcast live on the radio. Pretty soon, this once homeless guy is the piano player in a legit jazz orchestra touring the country. Well, the orchestra breaks up, and Parks returns to St. Paul, where he gets work as a porter on trains. And it's on one of these trips when he's in Seattle that he buys a camera. Back in the Twin Cities, he walks into department stores and asks if they'll pay him to shoot their clothes. And somehow, the wife of Joe Lewis, the heavyweight champion, sees his photos and tells him he ought to come to Chicago, where they live. So, he does. All his life, Parks has been getting into fights, mostly with racists. Fights with knives and guns. Fights that crash through plate glass windows. Fights that land him in jail. But now he has the camera. His choice of weapons, as he puts it. 
When he's not shooting fashion or fellow artists, he's shooting on the south side of Chicago. Tenements and gambling dens and young black men killed in knife fights on the street. And it's these photos of the black lives that white America scarcely knows about that earn him the fellowship to Washington. One day at the Farm Security Administration, Parks' boss, this guy Roy Stryker, tells Parks to put it all down on paper. And Parks is like, what? And Stryker says, well, you say you want to fight these things. What's your plan, man? So Parks goes home, and in one long, furious evening, he writes down all the terrible things that have happened to him. And he shows it to Stryker the next day. And Stryker says, you've had quite a time. Now, simplify it. You can't just take a picture of a white guy at a movie theater and say he's racist. Parks thinks about this. And he's still thinking about it years later, in 1948, when the war is over and his work for the government is over. And he's living in New York. And he gets an assignment from Life magazine to shoot gang life in Harlem. Parks earns the trust of a black gang leader named Red Jackson. And he shoots Jackson, slugging it out in fights, hiding out in abandoned buildings, attending the funeral of a friend killed on the street. The shots are great. And Life wants to make the essay the cover story. But then Parks sees the photo they've chosen for the cover. A shot of Jackson holding a gun. And he thinks, I can't do this. He's earned Jackson's trust, right? And in his photos, he's captured not just the gang stuff, but the big picture of his life. Jackson listening to the radio with his mother. Jackson with a girlfriend. Jackson afraid for his own life in a world of poverty and prejudice. And now, the magazine wants to highlight the one thing white America is afraid of. Jackson with a gun. So, Parks goes in the photo lab in Life magazine, finds the negative of Jackson holding a gun, and destroys it. Parks loses the cover. But the story, even buried on page 96, is arguably one of the most compelling photo essays of all time. And so, Parks is hired full-time as Life Magazine's first black photographer. And within a year, he gets an assignment to return to his hometown of Fort Scott in Kansas. He shoots some young black people, about the age he was when he left. A girl named Shirley Jean, 16 years old, who was, quote, 
alerted to the changes that must come, he writes. Planning for better things, college, a career. And yet many things haven't changed. In one image, he shows Shirley Jean and her boyfriend outside the movie theater where they're not allowed to sit on the main floor. He tries finding some of his old friends, too, but almost everyone has moved away. To St. Louis and Detroit and Chicago, and so he goes there, too, and photographs them in their new lives. And when he comes back to New York, he has a rich portrait of black lives, a picture of pride amid prejudice, a dignity that would have been eye-opening to many readers of life. But the story never runs. Fort Scott Revisited goes from the cover story to the shelf. And because you can't bear to see it sit there indefinitely, Parks takes his family and leaves the country. It's a pretty plum assignment, actually. Two years in the magazine's Paris Bureau. So what if Parks is mostly shooting rich white people? Like a group of teenage American expats who somehow managed to seem stricken with ennui in a left-bank jazz club. Paris's freedom, right, as so many black expats had already discovered. He goes to concerts and museums and writes poetry. For the first time in his life, he says, he feels relaxed. The haunted memories of his past will never fade, exactly, but they are becoming, well, the past. As though a curtain, he writes, is dropping between me and those soiled years. When he returns to New York, He has the confidence to call the shots, as it were, and soon he gets his chance. He's assigned to shoot a major story on segregation in the South, in the wake of Brown versus Board of Education. He asks for an assistant, a fixer, someone, as he puts it, young, black, intelligent, and fearless. Someone who understands the South. Then, he puts his will in order and he boards a plane for Birmingham, Alabama. The motherland, as he puts it, of racism. When Parks arrives in Birmingham, he's taken by a cab to the black part of town, past all these white-only signs, and he feels the small camera tucked in his pocket. And he thinks that finally he is where, for so long, he intended to use it. He meets his fixer, Sam Yeti, and they decide to photograph the Thornton family, who live in and around Mobile, Alabama. Park shoots the elderly matriarch and patriarch in their Sunday best on their sofa. He shoots a granddaughter, a school teacher in Shady Grove, a small segregated town outside Mobile, in her four-room shack of a school. 
The teacher tells the magazine, quote, Integration is the only way through which Negroes will receive justice. If we can get justice on our jobs and equal pay, then we'll be able to afford better homes and good education. He shoots great-grandchildren staring through a chain-lick fence at a white-only playground. Parks and Yeti are followed and attacked. And Parks fights off someone with his flash gun. And so, when their work is done, they flee from Shady Grove by a back road. And Parks takes the first plane back to New York in the morning. And it's not until he's in the air, he says, that he can breathe. This time, the story runs. In September 1956, and as soon as it's out, the subjects are under fire. The school teacher loses her job. Her family's belongings are taken. When life sends in a couple of editors to help, they're met in the mayor's yard by men with guns. Life magazine ends up giving the family $25,000 to relocate. Parks is pretty hardened now. He knows what his weapon can do, and he's not afraid to use it. And the next year, he gets his biggest test yet. The year is 1957, he writes. My assignment, explore crime across America. A journey through hell. Violent death from dawn to dawn. He crosses a country alarmed by rising crime from Chicago to San Francisco, photographing murder scenes and cops breaking down doors and men shooting heroin in their arms. And he shows, in these strangely gorgeous color slides, the effects of police brutality and addiction and mass incarceration of minorities. At Stillwater Prison in Minnesota, he meets a man named Baby Eubanks, What are you in for, baby? Parks asks. And baby tells him, murder. And that he and several other inmates have also been charged with killing one of their own, even though the guards did it, he says. And then he asks Parks to sponsor him for parole. And eventually, Parks does. In San Francisco, he meets with a guy in death row who killed a boy with a knife. Are you ready to die? Parks asks him. And when the man asks him to watch it happen in the gas chamber, Parks agrees. By now, Parks has worked with some of life's writers quite a bit. And his empathy for the incriminated, his understanding of the social and racial forces at play, have begun to rub off. This time when the story comes out, called The Atmosphere of Crime, it's framed with alarm with a cover image of a street gang right out of West Side Story, warning of fiends and sadists and desperados. But the writer, Robert Wallace, writes that black people, while charged with a disproportionate amount of crime, are, quote, the victims of prejudice. 
and until the dominant white group sees fit to give the Negro equality. The dominant white group may have to chew upon the following observation, credited to an Italian criminologist, that society has the criminality it deserves. To Parks, there are no easy answers, no easy narratives. When he comes home from the assignment, he says his film still smells like heroin and cocaine. And he begins to doubt himself, whether he has the right perspective or not. He gets some offers to talk about crime, and against his better judgment, he accepts a few. Only to find he has nothing to say. I, too, was begging the question, he writes, eating the same despair. Parks works for life until it folds in the early 1970s. Some 30 years after shooting Ella Watson, The Cleaning Woman, he's now rather rich and famous. The director of Shaft, the 1971 movie about a black private eye who gets the job done. A chance for black audiences, he says, to see a black eye winning. And then, one day in the mid-1970s, he picks up the newspaper on an airplane. And there's Ella Watson. His photograph of her in 1942, with the broom and the mop and the American flag. He flies to Washington and finds the archives of the Farm Security Administration. A young black man in charge of the files sneaks Parks into the storeroom. And there, near the bottom of a pile of negatives is the shot of Watson with the flag. Stryker had told Parks, you're going to get us all fired. But he hadn't destroyed the picture. He had only put it away until the world was ready. This has been the Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. I'm Tim Gearing. It's cold season, and, well, I apologize for the sound on this one. Leave us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Subscribe. And until next time, thanks very much for listening. Yeah.